Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. privilege and honor to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 7 as we're continuing our series through uh, the Gospel of Mark during this spring semester in chapel. As you turn there, I want you to think with me about what it was like growing up and playing pretend. I don't know what pretend looked like to you. Maybe it looked like running around in the backyard, uh, you know, kind of playing good guys versus bad guys with some of your neighborhood friends. Maybe it looked like building a fort across the creek in the backyard and kind of uh, playing war or, you know, these types of things, having these kind of make-believe battles. Maybe for you it looked like being in the driveway and imagining yourself as this Duke basketball hero, uh, you know, somehow winning one of their multiple uh, championships. Whatever you pretend might have looked like for you, maybe it even looked like playing up in a room, maybe with your sister, playing dolls or Barbies or whatever it may be. Pretend as a child was fun. It was innocent. It allowed our imagination to flourish, and we all know what it's like to pretend. In that sense, pretending really is just a game. But as you get older and you continue to or maybe to begin to pretend in different ways, it begins to blur the line of reality a little bit. For instance, you might can imagine as a teenager, someone who grew up at the beach who began to wear kind of surfer apparel, whether that was the particular brand of the t-shirt or of the bathing suit, maybe even to go out and buy a skateboard to carry it around and use it periodically, when in reality, surfing or skateboarding wasn't really a passion and you might not have been even very good at it. As you can tell, I'm talking in third person, but really conveying a first-person experience. In that seventh grade-ish type of uh, era, you might also would have recognized that I used sun in in my hair to kind of further this persona. If you don't know what sun in is, it's a uh, cheap bleaching alternative. And the first uh, couple of sprays that you use it while it's wet and then you dry, it actually turns your hair the color of what Mr. Hutchinson's hair would have been when he had some. Kind of this... <laughs> reddish orange uh, hair and then when you use enough it actually turns it blonde but all of this was a persona that begins to blur a reality and uh, the ad uh, kind of implementation of social media has kind of raised the stakes of the persona that we begin to buy into to where now all of a sudden make-believe does in fact become some level of reality Of course, then you can watch movies where people kind of play different figures. They're double agents or they're spies. They have multiple identities. And part of their portrayal of these other alternative egos or identities uh, kind of creates the suspense and the excitement. And we even get energized by maybe watching them do some of that and then embody that unknowingly even in our own lives. As adults, pretending and playing make-believe can actually be very dangerous and even more so as Christians, because when Christians begin to play it, it actually becomes self-deception that leads to self-delusion that ultimately becomes self-destruction. We want to believe the best about ourselves, and we want to convince everybody that our best day is every day. But when we have this false belief, one that's not really accurate about our own spiritual progress, about our own maturity, about our own good works, or even maybe about our own biblical knowledge, we actually stumble into a realm of darkness that blinds us 
to real, our real spiritual condition. This is a world of self-righteousness. You see, self-righteousness is not just believing that you can earn merit or favor with God through our good works. It's what Paul cautioned the Romans about in Romans 12, 3, that we ought not think more highly of ourselves than we should. You see, some people recognize that as they begin to indulge this belief about themselves, where they are in their spiritual journey and where other people believe them to be in their spiritual progress, they recognize that they're pretending, but it's a show they can't stop. It's a monster they have to feed. It's a persona they have to maintain. Perhaps even more dangerous is when others find themselves in the situation that they actually are convinced that this is true of them when they don't recognize that they're pretending. This danger, the spiritual blindness that is, in fact, self-righteousness, is what plagues the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Mark chapter 7. This passage clearly highlights the danger for us of what self-righteousness can do in our own hearts and what religion can, the role religion can play, how it can make us become like the Pharisees who were ultimately the real deaf and blind and unclean in this story. Typically, when we read these accounts, let's be honest, we're quick to realize or, or maybe kind of associate ourselves with someone other than the Pharisees and religious leaders. We criticize them and dismiss them as spiritually disillusioned. We think of them as misguided. Perhaps they're even obstinate or arrogant. They're even, in fact, hypocrites. But perhaps this characterization of them, without spiritually and carefully evaluating ourselves, is the best indicator that we are more like them than not. As we walk through this chapter, it is indeed a somewhat of a, a narrative, an extended narrative, but we're going to walk through it today, and I want you to see the, the dangers of playing make-believe, the danger of pretending, because as we walk through this passage, what we're going to see is four truths about self-righteousness that can really open our eyes to the truth of our spiritual blindness as we walk through these pass this passage together, we're just going to read a few verses and kind of highlight and extract some of these principles for application for us. The first truth Jesus shows us about self-righteousness that we're going to see in the first eight verses is this, that Jesus identifies the symptoms of self-righteousness for us. Jesus identifies the symptoms of self-righteousness for us. It's not always easy to see, especially when you're looking in the mirror. But when you read the truth of God's word, it becomes a mirror for our soul and reflects to us the reality of our own spiritual condition. So if you found your place there in Mark chapter 7, begin reading with me now in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and even dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but instead eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. These first verses, Jesus does in fact identify the symptoms of self-righteousness for us. 
In the eyes of the world, when you consider what the Pharisees and the scribes were, uh, the religious leaders, they had it all. They certainly had positional status. They had a public reputation. They had political influence. And they even had a pious education. But in this counter encounter with Jesus, in one fell swoop, he empties them, uh, their account of any true value by exposing their counterfeit status. By indicting their telltale signs, he also helps us recognize what we might see as symptoms in our own life where we may too be guilty of the same self-righteous fraud. When you look at these symptoms, we recognize one symptom in particular in the first two verses is that self-righteousness makes our attitude cynical. Self-righteousness makes our attitude cynical. He says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, they came to him, but we recognize even from their question and, and how they had observed him even previously in Mark's account, but all throughout the New Testament, we recognize that their motives weren't pure. They weren't coming just out of curiosity. They weren't even coming uh, by way of observation, certainly not to acclaim Jesus for what he was doing. But they came with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. You see, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious, those who were self-righteous came with a cynical attitude. They were suspicious. They were always measuring and evaluating where people lined up, but they were doing so by their own standards. Facts were not going to get in the way of their opinions, and their suspicions would be confirmed through their own investigation of the evidence. We too, like the religious leaders and Pharisees, can recognize self-righteousness in our own lives when we become very cynical of other people. We begin measuring them and their righteousness by our own standards. And we uh, are always kind of sizing each other up spiritually. Self-righteousness doesn't just make our attitude cynical. Another symptom that we see in this passage is that self-righteousness makes our heart critical. It makes our heart critical. In verse 3 through 5, Mark kind of includes this parenthetical statement that describes the Pharisees' rituals. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. This was not according to Old Testament law. It had become their tradition. And he even asserts that, that they were holding to the tradition of the elders. It had been that which was passed down to them, that which would be somewhat of a fence around the law. As he describes it in verse 4, he says, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Some people understand that this wasn't just a washing of the hands, but a full immersion of their body, just in case by somehow uh, chance they brushed up against someone that was unclean in the marketplace. They now had to immerse themselves before they would eat. They had, in fact, elevated the law based on uh, with their own traditions. There's many other traditions that they observe, he says. He goes on to talk about just how far they built the fence and how many fences they built. What this did was it gave them kind of the moral high ground where now they could evaluate everyone else based on a clear standard of measure that they themselves were able to and willing to practice, which is why in verse 5 you see very clearly the motive of their question. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but instead eat with defiled hands? When you think of what was going on here, as it describes, it wasn't just the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders. In fact, in verse 3, it says that all the Jews had now begun to adopt this practice, which teaches us just how contagious the disease of self-righteousness can be, how fast it can spread through the means of guilt or shame or pressure to conform. All of these things work to give them the moral high ground, the leg up, the way to evaluate and look down on other people. 
It was critical, and their question was critical. They were evaluating the disciples this way. Why do they not do this? Why do they not live up to our standard? Self-righteousness always does this. It makes our attitude cynical and our hearts critical. But Jesus also reveals a, another symptom of self-righteousness in his response. Self-righteousness also makes our worship ceremonial. Jesus doesn't even respond to the question they asked. Did you notice that? He didn't even directly respond. He just instead quotes to them a scripture that they would have been familiar with as the experts of the law. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? The term hypocrites here is, is used only here in Mark, whereas Matthew uses it throughout uh, his gospel account, only used here in Mark. And it simply describes a performer, an actor, one who was, in fact, pretending, certainly one who was uh, dual-faced or two-faced. But he says, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. If I'm being honest with you, every time I read this verse, whether it's in a daily Bible reading or hearing someone preach or whatever it may be, this is one of the scariest verses in Scripture to me. Because these people were going through the routine, believing that in some way, their actions, their deeds, their works were honoring the Lord, were drawing them close to the Lord. And yet God's assessment of their worship was that it was in vain, that it was empty, that it was shallow, that it was pointless. God's assessment of their spiritual proximity was not that they were close based on these things, but that they were ultimately distant. Their hearts were far from him. Self-righteousness makes our worship ceremonial it becomes empty and shallow, routine. It becomes going through the motions. This is where we begin to evaluate and, and, and equate compliance with obedience. The two are not the same. As he responds to them as hypocrites, he identifies that they were devout in their lip service, but they were distant in their hearts. They could talk the talk and walk the walk, but it didn't really reveal the true nature of their heart. What does this mean for you and me? Well, as Jesus identifies the symptoms of self-righteousness for us that are so hard to see in and of ourselves, we can recognize through Jesus' indictment in this passage as well as other places in the scriptures how we too can be guilty of the same thing. For instance, in Matthew 23, which is a more extended indictment of Jesus for the Pharisees, he indicts them for preaching what they do not practice. He talks about how they burden people with impossible standards that they themselves don't raise a finger to even lift. He tells what their true motives are, that they do their good deeds to be seen by others and even comments on the true affection of their heart that they love to be recognized in the mar marketplace and to have places of honor. We too can be guilty of the same self-righteousness when we evaluate others by our legalistic standards, when we speculate about other people's motives, why they're doing what they're doing, or when we evaluate ourselves by our own, our own public re reputation or persona by our standards of performance that we feel like we're being successful in. Perhaps a better question for diagnosis in our own hearts would be, what makes us prone to self-righteousness? If these are the symptoms as they convey themselves or reveal themselves, what makes us prone to self-righteousness? What should we be aware of? Accomplishments. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to do our best, but achieving things can plant a seed of self-righteousness in our own hearts. Knowledge, as we learn, which is certainly uh, the point of an uh, institution like ours, higher learning builds up knowledge, but knowledge we know from the scriptures puffs up and in, 
makes us more prone to self-righteousness. Progress as we overcome certain habits or uh, difficulties, temptations in our life can somehow begin to build our heart into a self-righteous idol factory. Status, maybe even service, works we do, or even future aspirations all make us prone to the self-righteousness. This passage, Jesus goes on to tell us more about the danger of self-righteousness. Not only does he identify the symptoms of self-righteousness for us, Jesus explains the significance of self-righteousness to us. In verse 8 and really down 9 through verse 13, what we see is Jesus explaining that it's not something that can just be dismissed. As though because we care about the things of God, that it's understandable that we're going to be defensive that we're going to hold people uh, to a level of accountability. It's understandable, and our motives are in the right place. And sometimes we want to dismiss self-righteousness as that, but Jesus says it's far more serious and far more significant. Read along what he says, starting and picking up back in verse 8. You leave the commandments of God and hold fast the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles uh, a father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is now korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus explains that self-righteousness cannot be overlooked. But the subtlety of self-righteousness or legalism is dangerous. Like the Pharisees, we often confuse our efforts, right, as those which are elevating and honoring the Scriptures, but yet Jesus clearly states that instead we're rejecting them. How do we do that? Well, in verse 8 and 9, he explains to us that we ritualize God's Word. We ritualize God's Word. We make the standards of holiness that which is something that can be perfected or performed. They elevated traditions over scriptures. And in fact, throughout this passage, he mentions the term traditions at least six times up through verse 13. He's continually contrasting uh, the phrase between the traditions of men and the commands of God, highlighting their source and where they're derived from. Jesus explained in Matthew 5 that the tradition of God's word, or the, excuse me, the truth of God's word does have a deeper or more fuller meaning. It goes beyond just the legalistic standard. The heart of the law was, in fact, deeper beneath the surface. But they were building ladders that elevated their standards above the law rather than allowing the law to go deeper and going deeper into it. We do the same thing when we normalize application of God's Word as though it's universal truth for everyone. And in essence, when we do, we nullify the Word of God. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. The word he uses there to indict them for the fine way they do that is actually the same word he used when he spoke of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah prophesied well or accurately, rightly about you. And this you do well when you elevate the traditions of man over God. They were experts at it. They weren't experts in the law. They were experts in legalism. They were experts in self-righteousness. We don't just ritualize God's word like they did. We rationalize our works like they do. In verse 10 through 13, uh, Jesus gives a common example, and he uses and, and pits against verse 10 what Moses said versus what 11, but what you say. There the emphasis and the emphatic kind of construction there is on the you versus what Moses said. 
What Moses said, and he quotes here from the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And then he parallels it with uh, the uh, penalty for those who don't, that you will surely die. But he said, someone might in fact say that instead of honoring my father and mother, maybe the best way I can honor my father and mother is give this property or this land, this offering, uh, this material possession to the Lord. And when I dedicate it to the Lord, that leaves my mother and father with nothing. But isn't this the best way to really honor them? The way Jesus presents it, it does in fact call into question the motive of the one who is giving this offering or this sacrifice. But it's not just what they do by way of giving the sacrifice to be seen and to, to be seen and to elevate themselves. It's compounded by how the Pharisees respond when they give it. They no longer permit them to do anything. In other words, they wouldn't give them a portion of it back. They wouldn't let them rescind the offering. Instead, now they tie their hands and not allow them to honor their father and mother. So they were just as guilty as the one who gave the gift, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. Jesus uses these examples of how they rationalize their works, and we do the same thing. This clear example, as he describes it here, is relevant for us that we, like them, are called to honor our family and to support them and even to provide for them. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, the one who doesn't support or provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever and has even denied the faith. We oftentimes can be guilty, not just in these types of scenarios, but many others just like them, many such things you do. When we justify our actions with some pious explanation that validates our motives, well, I'm not going to give because I don't really know where the money goes. I'm not going to forgive because I need to teach them a lesson and hold them accountable, and that's what God would have me to do. We bend God's word to rationalize our works, to fit with what our desires are. And when we do that, along with ritualizing God's word, we elevate our desires and our truth over the truth of Scripture. Let's be careful that we don't just affirm the doctrines of the Scriptures, inerrancy, infallibility, the inspiration, and even the sufficiency of Scripture and yet deny them by elevating our own standards of righteousness in a way that rises above the scriptures that we publicly affirm. In doing so, according to Jesus' words, we thereby nullify it. We also have to be careful that when we evaluate others' convictions based on what we might perceive to be gray areas in life, that we don't do so in the same way, elevating our standards for them, holding it over to them. Maybe that's in a gray area of behavior similar to what Paul described when he was talking about the meat sacrifice to idols, but also as we evaluate each other's doctrinal stances in less than essential issues. How we evaluate others' ministry philosophy is if we would do it different. How we evaluate their level of commitment to their responsibility, whether it be as a student or as a church member, and how we evaluate them and hold them accountable to those things may, in fact, us be elevating our traditions, our standards above Scripture. Sometimes we're guilty of doing this by way of evaluating others' level of maturity as well, not giving them a chance to grow. Jesus identifies the symptoms of self-righteousness for us, and Jesus does, in fact, explain the significance of self-righteousness to us. But in this next passage of the chapter, Jesus also diagnoses the source of self-righteousness in us. 
as he didn't answer the question to the scribes and the Pharisees, he now instead calls all the public to gather around him. And starting in verse 14, what we're going to see is his explanation to the crowd, to the people, and even to his disciples, to the question that the Pharisees raised. So starting in verse 14, follow along with what he says. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is then expelled? Then he declared, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus diagnoses the source of self-righteousness in us. Jesus is the master teacher. He never lets an opportunity go by without uh, identifying the value in it and teaching through it. He confronts the religious leaders, and, and as he does, he wants the people, and he gathers all the people now to understand the broader underlying truth that is common for all of our sin. He never addressed the sin, uh, the uncleanness with the Pharisees, but he does it with them. He, for them, he just questioned their source of authority. Now he explains it publicly and even privately for his disciples. What does he teach them and what does he teach us about the origin of sin and self-righteousness? First, he teaches us that sin originates in our depraved hearts. Sin originates in our depraved hearts. In verses 14 through 19, he describes how nothing coming from outside of us has any uh, moral polarity to it. It's not intrinsically moral one way or the other. And he also points out that the, the source of all of this is the heart because he describes it for his disciples in verse 19. Don't you understand that the sin, that, I mean, that the food that enters the body goes not into the heart but into the stomach and is expelled? It has no moral polarity on its own. It's, it intrinsically has no value one way or the other. But as you ingest it, your body also kind of uh, ciphers through and filters what is waste and expels it. It never actually enters into the heart, which is where defilement and depravity resides. This is the source of the self-righteousness that's in us. Ceremonial law had differentiated clean and unclean foods, and rightly so, but Jesus explains that those designations were actually serving a, a tutoring purpose to help them understand the greater reality of sin that could only be cleansed by his sacrifice. The real problem has always been that we have a heart that is desperately wicked, a heart that is deceitful and in desperate need of redemption. Sin originates in our depraved hearts, but sin also culminates in our deprived behavior. Sin culminates in our deprived behavior. It doesn't just remain in the heart, but Jesus says it's from within that it then works its way out. He taught them that the inward corruption of the heart would always produce corrupt behavior. He lists 13 sins that kind of derive there. The first one being evil thoughts. That kind of seems like an umbrella term. And the other 12 describes attitudes, actions, and affections. It's largely self-explanatory, but it's made up of these things to uh, modify the, 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 or correct. When we think of them, it's something that we look at and we say, oh, I can fix this. 
Coveting, I can stop doing that. Murder, I won't do that anymore. Adultery, I'll never do that. Wickedness, we look at this list and we see in ourselves the ability to stop or avoid these things. Jesus says that's actually not possible without dealing with the source that's in the heart, the root of the problem. You may look at this list and you say, well, now we've moved from self-righteousness to unrighteousness, but this is Jesus' point, and I want to make this clear. The root of self-righteousness is the same as unrighteousness. In self-righteousness, pride feeds on performance. In unrighteousness, pride feeds on indulgence. But both satisfy the flesh, and both are rooted in self-worship. Jesus wants them to understand that they're no better than the Pharisees when they struggle with these things, but he was helping them also understand that the Pharisees are no better than them just because they don't. They're both guilty of the same source and root of sin. Notice also that Jesus does not endorse or overlook the sins of unrighteousness as though they aren't wicked. In fact, he calls them all these evil things come from within. And as we evaluate self-righteousness, it does not negate the standard of righteousness that we must hold firm and confirm. He's actually helping the people equate the two. Similar to how he did in Matthew chapter 9, if you'll recall when uh, he was also being questioned and challenged, and as he was eating in the, the, the house of, with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples why he did that. And he responded to them that time, and he said, it's not the well who have a need of a physician, but the sick. He was trying to point out to them that their sin was just as wicked. Their sin was just as depraved. Their sin of self-righteousness was just as horrible as the sin of unrighteousness that they were accusing others of. For us, we have to recognize the same is true too. Because somehow in our piety, we want to believe that our self-righteousness is a cleaner version of sin than unrighteousness. And Jesus says it's not because the source is the same. It begins in the heart. Jesus identifies the symptoms of self-righteousness for us. Jesus explains the significance of self-righteousness to us. And Jesus diagnoses the significance of self-righteousness in us. But that leads us to our final point this morning that I want you to see, and that's that Jesus performs the surgery for self-righteousness on us. Jesus performs the surgery for self-righteousness on us. You see, the only cure or remedy for self-righteousness is the Savior's righteousness that's imputed to us by heart transplant. The healing ministry of Jesus highlighted in the final two encounters of this chapter actually captured this spiritual procedure by way of contrast with the Pharisees. The disposition of the Syrophoenician woman and the supernatural healing of her demon-possessed daughter and the deaf-mute describe what is necessary. You see, in the following verses that we won't necessarily take time to read or walk through, what we see is that Jesus now moves over to minister to the Gentiles. This is why it was so important for Mark to position this narrative about what is clean and what is unclean here in chapter 7. Because as he moves to the Gentiles, he would have been accused of being unclean, but he had disrobed and dismantled that misunderstanding. And in doing so, now ministering to them, he finds himself in a house with a crowd gathering around and a Syrophoenician woman specified as a Gentile comes to him with a daughter who is demon-possessed. She requests that he would heal her and he responds in a veiled type of way. He says, in fact, that 
He must give to the children the bread first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She then responds famously as we recognize, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said, Because you have said this, go, your daughter is made well. When she returned home, she found her daughter lying in the bed and the demon gone. When he moves on from there, he finds another Gentile in the Decapolis. And as he does so, they, they bring, them, bring this man to him. And he was deaf and he, was, he had a speech impediment. He couldn't speak clearly. And they begged him to heal him. And Jesus did. He touched his ears, he spit and touched his tongue, and he healed the deaf man. What does this tell us about the power of Christ and what's necessary to cure the sin of the Pharisees and to ultimately cure the sin of all of our hearts? First, it requires an honest awareness. It requires an honest awareness. You know, the Syrophoenician woman didn't get offended when he said the bread is not first to be given to the dogs. In fact, she agreed with him and said, yes, but it's okay for the dogs. Even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from under the table. An honest awareness of our own spiritual status. It's really a posture of the heart that we agree with God about our condition, that we see our need for a Savior, and that we, in our own self-righteousness or in our own efforts or in our own avoidance of sinful things, doesn't in any way excuse us from the need for this divine surgery to cure the self-righteousness. It requires an honest awareness. I'll tell you what else it requires. It requires a humble request. She requested, yes, but Lord, please give to me even the crumbs. And because of this request, because she was willing to not just confess, but ask from the one source who could provide the healing that she needed and her daughter needed, he granted it graciously. The same with those who came and begged that he might heal the deaf man who was also somewhat mute. This humble request sees Jesus as the only answer and recognizes through our honest awareness and humble request that Jesus will be the one to perform the surgery. That's what it ultimately requires, not just our honest awareness and humble request, but his healing touch. His healing touch. Jesus healed the demon-possessed girl. Jesus healed the deaf man, and Jesus can heal your heart and my heart of the self-righteousness and unrighteousness that we so oftentimes are guilty of. The danger in, in our own self-righteousness is that we would be blinded to it like they were, that we would ignore it or dismiss it, and this chapter highlights for us the significance of it. Recognize in our own lives the symptoms of self-righteousness. See it as significant that elevates our standard of measure above God's word. Recognize that it requires divine surgery from the one who can heal us of the root of the problem, which is in our heart. And when we do, God can cure us from play and make-believe, pretending that we're something we're not, and cleansing us of this self-righteousness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you for the way it penetrates to the depths of joint from marrow, soul from spirit, judging the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Because God, if we are honest today, we have a hard time doing that. In fact, we have many blind spots. 
And in a Christian setting, it often manifests itself in self-righteousness. Father, through the truth of your word, through the power of your spirit, may you show us the areas of our lives that need redemption, that need restoration, that need healing, that need purging, that need confessing, so that we might present ourselves before you with an honest awareness, a humble request, so that we might experience your healing touch. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.